Hey folks, Sean Engel here, host of Just One of the Guys, the podcast that you're eventually going to start listening to once I get done with this pre-preamble stuff. I'd like to address a little something that's been going on between me and a fellow podcaster, Mr. Michael Bradley, host of the ever-awesome Thrilling Adventures of Superman podcast. Again, if if you're not listening to Thrilling Adventures of Superman, why aren't you? Because it's an excellent podcast. But regardless of it being an excellent podcast, he and I have been having a bit of back and forth about oh, certain music that we use on the show. It's never been uh, mean-spirited. It's never been malicious. It's always been kind of poking fun at each other. But in the spirit of bipartisanship that I'm certain the country is going to have to go through, I've decided to stop poking fun at our various tastes in music and just basically lay down the gauntlet of friendship and say that silliness like this will happen never again. You know, actually, that's really not a bad Nickelback song. I've got actually handed to. Thanks, Michael. This has been really fun. You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that really wishes we were dealing with the Arnold Schwarzenegger Predator and not the Green Lantern one. It's using the trees, watching and waiting, killing us off one by one. The chopper is close, but this thing is too fast. We won't make it, it's pointless to run. Talk, no more games. I don't know what it was. The jungle came alive. Go on. It happened very fast, not easy to describe, but you must have wounded it. Unless my eyes deceive When the big man was killed Its blood was on the leaves If it bleeds, we can kill it Hello and welcome to a Chopper Getting To episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004 with a Blah, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my favorite Green Lanterns, and Green Lanterns that unfortunately 50% aren't in the comic right now. Because they don't exist, I'm certain you know which one. But of the 50% that do exist, Guy Gardner, we're going to have a great issue, well, not a great issue, but a issue of him, dealing with the weird Medusa-headed aliens that were causing various races to either go extinct, commit suicide, or fight endless wars. It's not a bad issue, and it's got Boudicca in it. Of course, Boudicca is essentially, yes, Tim Curry and drag. Thanks, Thomas DJ. I'll never get that image out of my mind. 
But uh, along with that, we also have our coverage of the Green Lantern issue, number 41, which deals with the Predator. Unfortunately, not the Arnold Schwarzenegger Predator, which would have been really cool. And in fact, I think there's actually a comic crossover where Green Lantern does deal with the Predator, but I think that's much later on in the timeline, and also I don't think it really falls into continuity. No, the Predator that they're going to be, well, that we're going to be covering today is the Predator that was brought forth in the Len Wein run of Green Lantern comics, and was basically determined to be Carol Ferris's masculine side. Yeah, I know Lenmin had a different idea for the Predator. I would really like to know what that was. Because Carol Ferris's masculine side is a pretty lame idea. Pretty lame villain, too. But regardless, we're still going to cover the comics, and I'm going to find the fun in them. And speaking of fun, let's go ahead and play a couple of promos for some fun podcasts that you should all be listening to. And then when we get back from that, We'll see if we've got any letters in the mailbag, and then get into our coverage of Green Lantern number 41. So, we'll catch you on the other side of the break. Hey, Obi-Wan, your lightsaber's showing. Take a bath, Pete. Live long and good. Suck it, Frodo. I'm sick of being a goddamn scarecrow. I'll give this podcast thing a try. Two, two, freaks! Later. I've come here to chew bubble gum and kick your ass. Wow, you've gone from very fine to near mint. What a man. Size matters not. Two true freaks. Libson.com. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. So strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You are changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. Or soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now, mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're but palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You nothings can't change the way I can. And these are the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you. For I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord. Until the Fantastic Four are no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak, blind or hulk. 
stop. We must not end on the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him till it has been drained of all elemental life. So, speak, Galactus. Slaymon! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witness the origins of a legend. The Fantastic Cast. FFCast.Libsyn.com And we're back. So, let's go ahead and do what we always do this time. No, not turn off the podcast and look for something more enjoyable to do. No, I'm talking about checking out the Just One of the Guys email bag. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and our first letter comes from Mr. Luke Giaconetti, host of Earth Destruction Directive over the Two True Freaks website, as well as co-host of the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror over at Two True Freaks. Two shows that you definitely need to be checking out. Uh, the title of Luke's email is Buck Rogers, Ann Coulter, and Diabolic. Where to begin? Luke starts out, Sean, just finished listening to Just One of the Guys number 38, and I have to say, it sounded like a good pair of books this time out. Well, if you're comparing it to issue 37 of Green Lantern, then pretty much anything was a good pair of books compared to that. He continues on, Adam Strange is a character who DC only seems to remember that they own every five years or so. He had a really good run in the Infinite Crisis era at DCU, where he figured into such stories as the Ranthanagar War, 52, and the two Jim Starlin Cosmics, I'm sorry, Cosmic Comics, Ranthanagar Holy War, and Strange Adventures. Pairing him up with the mainline DC cosmic hero in Green Lantern seems like a no-brainer, but evidently it's a bit beyond some folks at DC. Oh well. Adam is a little quote-unquote old-fashioned, I guess, with his jetpack and raygun, but there is a classic, almost timeless feel to the character. Even his gimmick, being zapped, into, being zapped to another planet by a beam from outer space, seems better suited to pulp from the 1920s than a comic book from the 60s, or the 90s for that matter. Yeah, it is kind of disappointing that DC doesn't know what to do with this really kind of interesting character. Yes, he is sort of a Buck Rogers ripoff, but these pulpy characters can be really fun, again, if taken by the right creator and written the right way. In these past couple of issues, uh, I really enjoyed what they did with Adam Strange, and even though there was a bit of wonkiness with the whole you-mind thing and this relationship to aliens, I really like the character of Adam Strange, and it'd be nice if they could some way bring him back. Maybe uh, they'll have something uh, with him in the current uh, issue of Savage Hawkman that they'll be doing for the new 52. Who knows? Luke continues on. Speaking of the planet Ran, the city of Ranagar has no connection with the planet Thanagar. They were both named in separate stories back in the early Silver Age. This became readily amusing in the early Hawkman-Adam Strange crossover, Planets in Peril, where the two similar names are both used and no one comments on how they are almost identical. Also, let me say this. I'm a conservative, and I've never made any bones about that or apologized about that, or hidden that fact. That have that having been said, I would love for Ann Coulter to be a recurring Green Lantern villain. <laughs> yes, there's something about a hero who works for a self-appointed band of guardians who tend to do more harm than good while handing out weapons of universal power to anyone who comes along while seemingly always treating everything else as a higher priority than Earth, being in the crosshairs of a conservative pundit like Ann. I'd also like to see her in a fight with Al Jordan. <laughs> you know, I, I could see Ann holding her own against Al. Over in the Guy Gardner issue, Guy uses his head. Awesome. 
I love it. I always love it when a big bruiser uses his head to outsmart his enemies, much to the surprise of pretty much everyone. Another hero pulled this stunt now and again was Luke Cage. Everyone always assumed that Big Bad Luke must be a pile of muscles, so when he outwitted an enemy, even his friends would be surprised, much to his chagrin. It really seems like Guy is being portrayed and shaded as a nuanced character, one who on the surface is just a tough guy but really has heart. Luke, I think you hit the character's uh, personality directly on the head. He's basically viewed as this kind of lunkhead moron, but there's a bit more depth to him. And coming up in uh, future issues, I hope you'll keep listening, you'll find out a little bit more about uh, some of his early upbringing, which kind of shades in his character a lot. In the same vein, I'm getting a very strong Wonder Man vibe off this series, Luke continues. In his solo series in the 1990s, Simon Williams was similarly fleshed out and given depth, even though everyone was still pretty much considered to be a one-note doofus. Similarly, both characters seem to evolve from solving every problem with their fist and being more well-rounded individuals. And sadly, both characters reverted once, reverted once their solo books were done, and all the growth from those books was forgotten. But that's the nature of solo comics for B-listers, I know. Doesn't mean I have to like it. Same here, Luke. I didn't really like it when Guy sort of reverted to the brainless thug that everyone hated on after his solo comic went away. I'm certain you were feeling the same thing once Wonder Man went away. It's it's the tragedy of having these... the, the fandom of these little B-list characters. When they get written by someone who knows and does the character right, it's awesome and you really get to enjoy the character even more, but when that character goes away for whatever sales reasons or where the writer just tires of writing him, he falls back into the same tropes and the same stereotypes that have been perpetuated about him before, and it's it's disappointing. Luke continues on. The fact that these books are not collected in trades seems to make them good candidate for binding. Over on Comic Beaks, over on the Comic Geek Speak podcast forums, there used to be a big community of guys who made custom binds for comics. There was an outfit called the Library Binding Company who did lots of them. They were sold or bought out by a group called Hochen Bindery. I think I'm pronouncing that. Yeah, Hochen Bindery, who still does it, but I haven't heard much about them. Still, making your own custom library-style hardcover of comics is an intriguing idea. I'll agree, but. What I think uh, is probably better with these comics is something I'll be discussing in another letter or so, so we'll continue on with Luke's email. You also mentioned the film Danger Diabolic, which was the last film riffed on MST3K, technically. It was the series finale, but Merlin's Shop of Mystic Wonders, featuring Ernest Borgnine with a sea turtle under his sweater, actually aired after that. Yeah, I remember, basically for some reason they couldn't get... I don't think they could get the copyright to show it on the Sci-Fi Channel until a certain period of time, so they had to withhold it. I think it was actually episode, like, uh, four, three or four of the tenth season. I can't remember, but, yeah, I do remember that uh, Merlin's Shop of Mystical Wonders did air after the season finale. Uh, Luke continues on, but never mind that. Did you know that Danger Diabolic was an adaptation of a long-running Italian comic? And that besides the film, there was also an animated series for Diabolic. I knew that it was a comic. I didn't know there was an animated series. That's kind of interesting. Also, do you know who directed Danger Diabolic? That's right, Mario Bava. I was not lying when I said that Bava's contribution to Italian cinema literally spanned all genres of work. Danger Diabolic is not a great film, but it's not bad in its uncut form. 
more than 17 minutes were excised from the film when it made it over to the UK and the US. It's certainly a pretty movie to look at, if nothing else. If by pretty, you mean, you know, it's got some really nice shots of a very attractive woman in very revealing clothes, then yeah, I'll give you that, Luke. It's a very pretty film to look at. Anyway, looking forward to the next episode. Keep them shining, Luke. Thanks, Luke. I really appreciate that. Uh, again, the uh, relationship with Mario Bava that Luke mentioned about Danger Diabolic, the <sighs> sad but awesome finale of Mr. Science Theater, one of the greatest shows ever to grace the television medium, ever, is that he's also being covered uh, in the vault of startling monster horror tales of terror uh, Italian cinema line that we're looking at, uh, some of the Giallo films, and we're taking a look at some of the films of Mario Bava. Uh, we've looked at, uh, what, Black Sunday. We've looked at The Girl Who Knew Too Much. And our next film we're going to be covering is Kill Baby Kill. Let me tell you, Italian cinema is really fun. And Bava really does a great job. He's a masterful cinematographer and a great director. So if you're not listening to The Vault of Strawling Monster Horror Tales of Terror and you want to get some idea about good horror cinema... Go check it out. The next letter we have comes from Jay Ferguson. It's a follow-up to the Guy Gardner uh, letter that he wrote a while back. But he writes in to say that he wanted to let me know that the first issue of the 1990 Green Lantern comic is available on Comixology, which seems like it'll be the beginning of these issues being available digitally, though who knows about the Guy Gardner stuff. But, hell, it's a start. And I responded to Jay saying that I'm glad that Comixology is reprinting some of the stuff, and maybe it's a good idea that instead of getting these things in trade, that they actually get them in a quality digital form. It's much cheaper. It's a way that DC can technically get the comics out and reap some money off of them. And it's a way for people to, I guess, legally get access to these comics. Not that I'm saying that you should look for them illegally, but they are out there if you want to find them in other various digital forms. So thanks, Jay, for writing in about that. And actually, we had a couple of people write in about uh, the Comixology app uh, having Green Lantern comics, including Dave Walker, the host of the oh, geez, the host of the podcast Flash Legacies. You can check it out over at flashlegacies.libson.com or check it out on iTunes. Also got the same notice from Mr. Charlie Niemeyer, fellow Oklahoman and host of the Superman in the Bronze Age podcast. In fact, if you're interested, uh, go over to Comixology if you don't have an account. I think it's free to sign up. If you've got any type of device, I think it works on Android, but I know it works on iPhone and iPad, you can go download the Comixology app, and a couple of the issues that they have are relevant to this show. Issues 30 and 31 of Green Lantern, and issues 69 and 70 of Flash, which cover the guerrilla warfare storyline that Dave Walker and I covered oh, a little over a month or so ago. It was fun stuff, it was a great read, and a great uh, bringing back Silver Age ideas into the modern comics. Plus, it's got big-headed freak Hector Hammond and talking monkey Gorilla Grodd in there, so what's not to love? So thank all of you for letting me know about the Comixology thing. I'm glad that they're actually starting to put these comics out digitally so people can actually get access to it. Uh, the number of comics they have out are pretty limited, and they're only of specific eras, pretty short runs, but I think maybe eventually they'll start putting more out, and 
I really think digital is probably going to be the way to go. So even if we can't get these out in a trade, if we can get them out digitally, I'm perfectly fine with that. But just under the wire, we got another letter in from Luke Giaconetti, and this one is entitled Ann Coulter, Barbarian Space Queen, and Other Stories. This big Ann Coulter theme, this issue. Oh. Maybe it's just because it's after the election and she's probably really hacked off. Anyhow, Luke starts out. Sean, you mentioned on the show that you could not find any Buck Rogers music. Let me direct you to www.buck-rogers.com where you can download the entire soundtrack to the Buck Rogers film. Good stuff from the AM radio singer-songwriter style opening song, Elevation, to the rest of the very earnest old-school sci-fi tunes. The site seems to be acting up a bit, but he says Luke says he can hook me up with the soundtrack if need be. I checked it out, and yeah, the site was a bit wonky, but I was able to find a couple of songs, and I'll add them uh, to my based on my song list, and if I never need some sort of sci-fi songs, I think I'll check those out. Thanks for directing me to that, Luke. Luke continues, Issue 39 of Green Lantern seemed like a 180-degree flip from the previous one. Yes, we still have Adam Strange and Ann Coulter, but the thick application of cosmic mumbo-jumbo made it a more heady and seemingly a lot less fun. It's a common criticism, and not an unfounded one, either of cosmic comics, that they get too involved with the lingo and quote-unquote consciousness-expanding stuff, and this issue fits that bill. I'm not accusing Gerard Jones of taking hallucinogenic substances like Jim Starlin evidently did in the 1970s, but it's still pretty out there. Yeah, I don't think this issue was going necessarily for a sort of trippy, hallucinogenic vibe, but a lot of the images did have that sort of like I mentioned, Ditko-esque feel, with a lot of uh, very graphic colors and a lot of pastel shades, and the inking pretty much all completely removed. Uh, It gave it this sort of ethereal quality and definitely distinguished it from the rest of the artwork in the book. Continuing on, Luke says, I could see Ann Coulter as a space queen in a cheapy sci-fi movie. She'd have her bevy of other conservative babes as her cohorts, and they'd all dress in shiny jumpsuits like Catwomen on the Moon or one of its ilk. Now you may be asking, what does this have to do with fiscal responsibility, limited government, the Second Amendment, or conservative doctrine? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Laugh out loud. I agree. I would love to see a comic book or a movie where you've got Ann Coulter, Michelle Malkin, and Monica Crowley dressed in skin-tight, you know, leatherette, spacesuit type things, fighting against some evil criminal underground, and their sort of Charlie to their angels would be none other than Sarah Palin. It would be just ridiculous conservative nuttiness. I would, I would find that quite amusing. So long as it doesn't get into the really off-kilter politics that they had some sort of comic where G. Gordon Liddy and Sean Hannity were superheroes. Nothing like that. Just don't have them doing don't have them doing political stuff. Just have them, you know, fighting aliens and shooting lasers. Make it like Danger Girl. Why not? Luke continues, Regarding Adam Strange's wife and daughter, by the time of Infinite Crisis, Alana was alive and well again. And Aaliyah was a little kid, like seven, I think. I really like that dynamic, with Adam being the dotting husband and family man, in addition to being the jetpack-wearing hero. I'm hoping that Ron and Adam emerge in the New 52, 
which has put a minor emphasis on alien planets such as Mars, Thanagar, and Tamaran. So, why not Ran as well? Exactly, DC. Why not Ran as well? Develop this character, get a good writer behind him, and, you know, make this character an integral part of the universe. I think it'd be a heck of a lot of fun. Over in the Guy Gardner issue, I think that Never Gonna Stop by Rob Zombie was a good choice for a brawl between Guy and Lobo. Both of them seem to exhibit the quote-unquote sinister urge, the album the com the song came from, after all. I do have to ask this about Guy's ring continually conking out. Is this explained at some point? Because right now it seems like a plot device, like Spider-Man running out of web fluid or Iron Man running out of power for his chest plate in the Silver Age. Yes, Luke, it's going to be explained. In fact, it was explained uh, last episode, but unfortunately I haven't released that episode. Wibbly-wobbly-timey-wimey. I can't explain it. But yes, Luke, it's it's going to be explained. You'll you'll find out about it. Talking about onomatopoeia, my favorite instance of that is in an issue of Marvel 2-in-1, number 13, which teams up the ever-loving blue-eyed thing with Luke Cage, Power Man. Ben and Luke fight a monster called Bragadoom. Okay, who takes the name for himself after he hears the sound made when he destroys a building. Yep, that's right. He destroys a building, and the sound effect the sound effect is Bragadoom. So then he takes the name of Bragadoom. How the heck does that work? All I can say is Bronze Age wonkiness. Bronze Age wonkiness. As far as some of the ads, you were close with the Coneheads. Jane Curtin played Primat on both Saturday Night Live and the movie. Exactly, Luke. I'm pretty certain I said Lorraine Newman. I'm certain I should have meant Jane Curtin. Jane, you ignorant slut! That's exactly how I feel. But he continues on, I have a soft spot for this one, as it was in quote-unquote HBO movie back in the day, and I must have seen it a million times. Rocky D, Dinosaur Extraordinaire. More like D-Bag Extraordinaire. I almost started crying when you made the Poochie reference because I just had that thought myself for years. I just saw this ad this past weekend while reading the Venom Lethal Protector miniseries and thought, man, this guy is so Poochie. And here you go making the point. Score. I also like the use of the Jurassic Park music in there during the dramatic reading. Well, thank you, Luke. I consider myself a fine thespian when doing these things, and... The dramatic sound soundtrack of John Williams definitely helps with my acting abilities. Hopefully, covering them up somehow. Luke continues, As far as Double Dragon 3, remember at this point, the brawler game genre, like Double Dragon and its sequels, plus the game's Final Fight, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, X-Men, and Streets of Rage, was still very popular. Fighters like Street Fighter 2 and the upstarts, brawlers, were, were the upstarts, Brawlers were the reigning champ. Added this that the 8-bit systems had a hard time with the fighters, but were better suited to the brawlers, and there you go. It's an interesting divide, brawlers and fighters. You'd think they would cross over easily, and to an extent they do. But I've seen some very nasty arguments of fans on both sides about why their genre is better. Sheesh. Yeah, people will find anything to argue about. Whether it be video games, politics comic books, whatever. Arguing seems to be the fun thing to do, and unfortunately the internet has allowed people to do it unfettered and unchecked and without any real remorse to do 
the real remorse behind what they say or do, which is kind of disappointing. But off my soapbox, back to Luke's email. One reason why fighters were more popular than brawlers? Quarter eating. Arcade owners loved fighters because they would eat quarters fast, much faster than a brawler would. And once you got a good player holding court on a machine, he'd earn you quarter after quarter as new challengers lined up and came in. Brawlers emphasized a teamwork during multiplayer, and you could work together to make it farther to the game on the same credit. Fighters never had this problem and thus earned more money and sold more units to arcades and earned more fans from gamers, and the cycle continued. Finally, while I do like Echo and the Bunny Man's version of People Are Strange, nothing will top the original Doors version. Yeah, I do agree. The Doors version is the better version of the song, but I like the Echo and the Bunny Man version quite a lot, and whenever I can, I always like to throw in that sort of alternative version of the song. I did the same thing with the uh, version of Destination Unknown, uh, the previous episode, and I think it's just nice to change things up every once in a while. I don't have an incredibly eclectic uh, musical library, but every once in a while I like to throw in something that's sort of out of the ordinary, and Echo and the Bunny Man just fit the bill. Luke finishes up. Keep up the great work on the show, Luke. Luke, again, thank you for writing in. I don't know how, between this and Andy's Hey Kids comics, that you find any time to do anything. You are an incredible letter writer. writer. Thank you for writing in, and I appreciate everyone who uh, sent in the information, Jay, David, and Charlie, about uh, what's going on with Comixology as well. Thank you all for writing in. It's great to have you as listeners, and I can't wait to get to more Green Lantern comics like this one. Green Lantern number 41, which was cover dated early June 1993 with a release date of April 13, 1993. Cover price again, $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and 60 p UK. The title was Predators and Prey. The writer was Gerard Jones, penciler and M.D. Bright, inker Romeo Tangal, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Berganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Demanded to be let back in, the Predator looms large over a bent-over-the-table Carol Ferris as a shocked Green Lantern Hal Jordan looks on. Angered that someone else is honing in on his off-again-on-again girlfriend, Hal blasts the Predator, but his beam passes through him. Experiencing Lanternus Interruptus, Predator challenges GL to, quote-unquote, beat me, while Hal retorts to, get off. Saying that he's part of Carol's masculine side, and the part that Hal is attracted to, you, Predator repeats that he needs to get back into Carol to make her better. Hal thinks this is a bit hard to swallow, and fills up the Predator with energy that will keep him from getting inside Carol. Over at Innuendo Finished, a little Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, breaks out until the Predator realizes he is shooting blanks by using too much of his manly essence. Okay, now the innuendo is over with. As the Predator escapes, Hal runs to the cringing figure of Carol, promising he will help her. Cut to Carol's apartment, where Aresia and Michelle Kalamaku are playing with their Green Lantern dolls, while Tom and Turgo wonder what Hal's damage is, i.e. his ignoring of Aresia, his refusal to talk with Carol about the marriage, the Flash coming back, etc., etc. After breaking up the fight, the Kalamakus send the children up to their rooms, when suddenly Hal phases to the wall with Carol in his arms. Hal tells Tom to hold down the fort at his business while he takes Carol someplace safe. 
Hearing the commotion, Aresium rushes to meet Hal and is verbally smacked down for a trouble. Hal tells Tom to do some searching through the accounts while Carol is away, which Tom agrees would be a good idea. And with that, Hal phases it through the roof as a wounded Aresium looks away. Crestfallen, Aresium runs outside, upset that Hal didn't even want to talk to her. But her troubles are about to get worse, as she is suddenly taken over by the Predator. Flying off, Hal plans on taking Carol to one of his myriad of former female companions, Eve Dormus, to have her look after her. On the way there, we get a mauve-colored flashback, where Hal recounts all the backstory with Carol, the Predator, Star Sapphire, Eclipso, and the like. He also muses about how most of the women in his life are nuttier than a pecan log from Stucky's, until he decides that pawning Carol off on someone else isn't the way to go. The story breaks for a panel, show Tom finding some weird accounting going on in Hal's business, then it's back to the Predator, who is somehow holding on to the tail of a bright yellow passenger plane in flight. Predator has his own mob-colored flashback, detailing how Eclipso and he fought over Carol's body. And with all subplots accounted for, Predator skydives from the plane, determined to retake Carol and kill Green Lantern. Meanwhile, Carol and Hal are chillaxing in a family member's log cabin. Carol says she's feeling better, but wants to get back to her own life and out of Hal's. Hal drops the quote-unquote friend bomb on her, which promptly puts Carol to sleep. Well, not really, but I'm certain Carol didn't want to listen to Hal drone on and on about all the girls he's been with and how he's special, and blah 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 blah. Hal carries Carol to bed and heads outside for a little introspective monologue, but that is soon interrupted by the Predator, who is now inhabiting the body of hot ex-girlfriend Aresia. Hal rings up some goofy-ass armor and engages in a little ex-lover fighting McFeinstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, until the Predator is taken down by a blast from the rocket launcher of Deathstroke, the Terminator. <sighs> yeah, the Predator. In general, I love the Silver Age. I think it's a really fun time in comics, and a, real, a lot of really great stories came out of it. And even the Bronze Age, you know, I really enjoy, and a lot of the villains that came out of there are really interesting as well. But the Predator just isn't one of those villains. He just doesn't work for me. Now, if you've been listening to Green Lantern's Light, which I couldn't see why you shouldn't be, but if you're a Green Lantern fan, you need to listen to this show. They covered the uh, Green Lantern issues where the Predator actually came into being, and this was when Len Wein was writing the character. The guys from Green Lantern's Light actually had an interview with Len Wein, and they kind of found out that the Predator was going to be a bit different than it turned out to be. I think Len Wein had it being a uh, person that he hadn't really written up in the uh, story arc yet, so it was going to be an entirely different character and an entirely different villain for the Green Lantern book. Unfortunately, I got phased into this being the masculine side of Carol Ferris, and now I think Gerard Jones is in his own way trying to retcon that sort of retcon and try and make the Predator character tie in with uh, more of the grander scheme of the Green Lantern universe. It'll be interesting to see where it goes over these next few issues. Plus, I must point out that the Predator's costume is perhaps one of the most 90s costumes I've seen. The giant shoulder pads, the ridiculous claws that uh, kind of remind me of the 
Asbats claws that he'd have on his thing. The uh, weird claws with the metal rings around them. Just all very bizarre look. And I know the design change isn't that much from the original time that the Predator came out. If so, uh, the artists at the time were ahead of their time in drawing 90s-style characters. But with that out of the way, let's go ahead and get in the notes. Uh, the cover, decent cover, except for the fact that it's got the Predator on it. And if you weren't looking, you know, you'd miss Eclipso up there in the moon. Kind of looks like he's just been photoshopped in for really no apparent reason at all. Of course, I know they didn't have Photoshop here, but he just sort of looks stuck up there and didn't look like he was actually a part of the picture. Otherwise, it's a really good image. Uh, Carol looks good. Hal looks good. He's getting slashed. Get it? Predator slashing. You get it. Uh, on the cover. But the kind of weird thing is all of this action is taking on outside. So there's a ton of onlookers in the background. Well, not a ton, just five onlookers in the background. And in the comic, all the action was set on the inside of Carol's office. So it's just kind of weird that they decided to place the cover art outside rather than where it actually was in the book. Page one, we get perhaps the most uncomfortable splash page ever with Carol bent over a desk with her legs spread wide and the predator looming over her behind her saying, No, let me back in. Uh, for sodomy, anyone? Ick. And even more ick, we've got page 3, panel 3, where the Predator says that Hal is attracted to Carol's masculine half. Not that that's a bad thing, but just kind of awkward for Hal, I guess. And yes, these two pages are rife with innuendo, with the uh, Predator yelling to Hal to beat me and Hal telling the Predator to get off. <sighs> I shouldn't notice these things, but unfortunately when you read it with a critical eye, you kind of catch them. At least there was no guy asking for a pearl necklace. Page 4, panel 4, we get Hal saying that he filled the Predator with an energy barrier to keep him from attacking Carol. So, this is something new, and... I guess this is our example of the Green Lantern book now having its super ventriloquism analog. Yes, it's the weird and wonky thing that never really comes up again and has never really come up before, but is used to basically further the plot along. It's a kind of goofy, made-up-on-the-spur-of-the-moment plot device that really doesn't work. Page 5, panel 1. I know the, char the character of the Predator is a sort of ethereal character, and he can phase in and out of people's bodies. Even so, I want to know where he pulled his axe from, because he's got this giant, not really battle axe, but more like fireman's axe that he's swinging at Hal, and he has not had it on his belt or anywhere in any of the previous panels, so... Maybe he pulled it out of, you know, some ethereal dimension or whatever. But it's just kind of wonky that it was, wasn't was there before and is there now. Moving on to page 8, panel 1. Now, I've got a question. If Olivia Reynolds 
is in the hospital, and the last thing she was trying to do was get to this mysterious billionaire to try and finance these dolls. How do Arisi and Michelle actually have the Green Lantern dolls? I mean, these are obviously the ones that Olivia was trying to get sold, and this um, mysterious billionaire was going to finance. And this was prior to all this. She hasn't had a chance to get the money to get them sold yet, but the kids are playing with Green Lantern dolls. Maybe Hal just took the prototypes and dropped them off with the Kalmakus and is letting the kids play with them while Olivia sits in the hospital recuperating. Nice. Page 11, panel 3. Great. What's worse than having the Predator in your book? Having the Predator with boobies. Yep, when he inhabits Aresia, he basically takes on Aresia's body and Aresia's figure as well. So, there you go. Page 11, panel 1, we get Hal uh, mentioning that Power Girl turned to him during her identity crisis. And my thought was that, you know, Power Girl really didn't have anything to do with identity crisis. I mean, she was more prevalent in the whole uh, infinite crisis thing. And I, oh... Oh, wait, they're talking about something else. Sorry, my bad. Then on page 15, panel 1, we get Tom checking up on the mysterious benefactor, thus allowing one subplot to move forward, probably without any resolution. And on the same page, panels 2 and 3, we get the Predator clinging to the wing, or I guess not the wing, the tail fin of a bright yellow jet plane. For no reason whatsoever. I guess this is how the Predator has determined it would be the best way to travel. Weird. Page 16, panel 1. Joy. We get more violence against women, which we've had over the past couple issues, with Eclipso smacking Carol for apparently no reason. Hooray. Then moving ahead to page 20, panel 2. I've gotta wonder what the heck is up with Hal's just goofy armor. It looks like it might be something akin to sparring gear, which people use in either fighting or uh, my daughter uses it in karate, but it just looks really wonky. In the third panel, it looks like he's just wearing a giant Green Lantern apron. It's really weird. And then finally on page 22, we get the splash of Hal meeting up with Deathstroke the Terminator. So... Yeah, I guess if Guy got to get a cameo from Lobo, Hal should get a cameo from DC's second biggest anti-hero. Why not? Plus, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting, now looking at it in retrospect, that even though this isn't a crossover like Aliens vs. Predator, a crossover with Terminator vs. Predator would have been kind of cool. I think that would have been a neat crossover. You know, I mean, Dark Horse held the rights to Predator and Terminator and Aliens, all that stuff. Why not a Terminator versus Predator crossover? That would have worked better than this, in my opinion. But that does it for Notes for Green Lantern. We're going to take a quick break, play a few promos for some excellent podcasts, and when we come back, I'm going to get into my synopsis of Guy Gardner number 10. Stay tuned. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now 
under the control of the Earth's destruction directed 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 Hey you Yes you hearing this message Do you like podcasts Well evidently you do because you're listening to one right now Do you like giant monsters Of course you do Who doesn't like giant monsters Well then have I got the show for you Earth Destruction Directive is the newest Daikaiju podcast on the internet. And we talk about all your old favorites, like Godzilla, Rodan, King Ghidorah, and Gamera. But also lesser-known monsters, like Gappa, Yangari, and Giala. We cover everything, from movies, to comic books, to video games. And we're kicking it old school. This is breaking news. We are receiving word that Earth's Destruction Directive is now a part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. Listeners are advised to stay in their homes and listen to all of the fine quality podcasts on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, available at twotruefreaks.libton.com. We now return you to your regularly scheduled broadcast. Wait a minute. Is this true? Earth's Destruction Directive is now on the Two True Freaks Network? You bet your oxygen destroyer it is. So if you love atomic-powered, fire-breathing, hardcore, giant monster action, then head on over to twotruefreaks.libson.com and check out Earth Destruction Directive. We're turning all of your daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Hi, this is Professor Allen. And when I'm not listening to an awesome podcast, like this one, I'm co-hosting an awesome podcast, The Book Guy Show. Every week, we cover book news, book reviews, comic books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. Search for The Book Guys Show on iTunes, or come visit us at bookguys.ca. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman Golden Age Superman The Superman Fan Podcast Superman in the Bronze Age From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast The New 52 Adventures of Superman Superman Forever Radio I've got a few things to say about Superman The Kara's World Podcast The Superman Vidcast The World's Best Podcast And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com Join hosts Michael Bradley John Wilson Billy Hogan Charlie Niemeyer J. David Weeder Jeffrey Taylor Michael Bailey Scott Gardner Danny Sapp Cayman Stoll I'm Isaac I'm Adam Dave Eunice and co-host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com And thank you very much, Charlie, and thank you very much, Stephen Lacey, for bringing us that new podcast promo for the Superman Podcast Network. Every one of the shows on there is inherently awesome, simply because they're talking about Superman. 
they're also awesome because they're done by great podcasters and are really fun shows as well. So any of those shows tickle your fancy, go check them out. But what we're going to tickle next is your guy Gardner fancy. Again, not all of them can be gems. Anyhow, Guy Gardner number 10 was cover dated July 1993 with a release date on or around June 1st, 1993. Cover price was $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and $60p UK. The title was Manifest Destiny. Writer was Will Jacobs, penciler Joe Staten, anchor Terry Bainey, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Surrounded by former allies who now want to kick his butt, Guy Gardner screams, What the hell is this? As some Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, breaks out. Seeing that his teammates, well, and Boudica, all seem to be hypnotized, Guy makes a run for it as the Emerald Amazon gives chase, using the ring to burrow through the alien soil. Guy ditches Boudica, but then runs into a group of the weird Medusa-headed aliens. Guy uses the ring to translate their speech and gets some message about manifest destiny to purify the cosmos. Not liking the sound of that, Guy attacks the aliens and gets a force field to the face for his troubles. Regrouping, Guy heads back to find any of his allies and run into the palindrodnalap rags on the way. Guy rescues the diminutive alien and uses his ring to show him what he sees. Shocked by the presence of a giant spaceship overhead, Rags wonders what their next move is. Guy makes his next move with a capture of one of the warring hypnotized aliens. He brings out of the mind control and has him tell Guy and Rags what the heck is going on. The Dr. Zayas wannabe recounts the tale of an alien astronaut who warned them about a race called the Ophidians, a race of beings who unleash their warlike spirits in all species, causing them to turn upon themselves, either engaging in all-out war or mass suicide. Certain that his race will be the next, the alien pleads with Guy to help him, and the former Green Lantern is more than happy to oblige. But Guy isn't about to tackle the problem alone, so he heads back to where his former allies were and ring blasts them, letting them see the Ophidian ship overhead. Guy and Boudicca streak toward the ship, and again are met with a force field to the face. Fed up, Boudicca starts tries to start another fight with Guy until the Ophidian ship starts to warp away. Saying that they'll follow it to their homeworld and take the fight to them, Guy and Boudicca give chase until the ship starts to break away from them. The duo will up as much speed as they can, but the ship is still pulling ahead. It's then that Guy pulls from deep within his lower intestinal tract the idea to link the rings to somehow increase their speed. Okay. The two do it, and they finally catch up with the ship, only to have it blow up real good. Crisis averted, by no real action of the heroes, the two head out, both feeling confused over the hollow victory and creeped out over the whole sharing ring energy. Cut back to the alien planet, where Stickfast, Blaze, and Rags are being surrounded by the Dr. Zayas wannabes. However, this time, they want to talk rather than fight. In fact, they paid Rags 56 million wubs for the rescue, which Guy gladly hands over to the pilot drawed in lap in exchange for him quitting the Gardeners of the Universe. Wondering why Guy is leaving this prestigious leadership role with this elite fighting force. <laughs> nope. Sorry. Couldn't keep a straight face. Guy says he's better off working as a follower. A soldier. A guy in the trenches. And with that, Guy blasts off, leaving a frustrated Boudicca behind. 
But before she engages in the quote-unquote personal stress relief to calm herself down, Boudica contacts the Guardians and tells them that Guy still has his ring. The Guardians say that they are aware of the situation, and that since they and Guy are working toward the same goal, they will allow him to keep the ring. Boudica acquiesces, but thinks to herself that if Guy ever steps out of line, she'll be there to take him down. This isn't the best issue of Guy Gardner that I've read. In fact, so far I might want to say that it's perhaps the worst one that we've had on the show. That being said, it's not horrible, it's just not up to the standards that I'm used to. It's got a lot of dialogue explaining what's going on, and that's one of the things that I really despise in comics, where it seems that the writer doesn't feel that the artist can do a good enough job with the art to portray what's going on, so he has to have the character saying what's going on. That really bugs me. Add to that the whole linking rings thing, and it all sounds like a whole bunch of New Age hooey, and I just didn't get into it. But let's go ahead and try and take a look at some of the more entertaining things about the book. Uh, The cover's a decent one, with a few positive and a few negative points. Uh, The positive being the sense of speed that Staten's trying to convey. It's a really good job with the uh, sort of orangish blobs flying by him, all the speed lines, and the the inking also portrays this idea of them moving at really fast speeds. It's kind of nice. Plus, for once, Staten gets the female form of Boudica right. I mean, she looks feminine, she doesn't look overly masculine, and it's nice. She doesn't look like Tim Curry and drag, which is always a bonus. The negatives are, I don't know what's going on with the sleeve of Guy's right arm, but it looks all wonky. It looks like someone just basically took his arm and twisted it 360 degrees a couple of times. It's all twisted up, so that's kind of weird. And Also, Guy has this very Brock facial expression. and By Brock, I mean Brock from Pokemon and not Brock from the Venture Brothers, because that would be cool. Page 3, panel 3, as Stickfast, the uh, sort of bouncing boy alien hero, tries to subdue Guy. He does it by inflating himself and landing on top of Guy. And All I can say is, I think I've seen some BBW videos on the internet that were a lot like this image. I'm not going to put any links to them because this is a family-friendly podcast. Well, mostly. Page 5, pen 1. Guy refers to Boudica as She-Hulk. Well, he almost refers to her as that, because then they'd probably get sued by Marvel for copyright infringement, for mistaking DC's female in green for Marvel's female in green. Page 6, pen 1. After trying to ram into the alien's force field, Guy decides that what would work better this time is if he rammed into the force field, but this time much harder. Not really the brightest move on Guy's part there. Page 8, panel 2, after Guy's picked up rags, he gives an explanation of why he can see the aliens when the other people couldn't, 
and it's kind of wonky. It reads like, I must have. Uh, it must have something to do with the negative universe ring. I figure. I couldn't see the ship either until Boudica recharged it. So the negative energy is giving him second sight to see things that no one else can see. I thought that was something only Egg Chen could give to Jack Burton, but who knows? Page nine, panel three. As the Doctor Zayas alien says. They are Doom. All I can think to myself is, no, 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 Doom is the leader of Latveria, and he's encased in armor, and he's got a green cloak, and he hates the Fantastic Four. Oh, oh, wait. Wrong, wrong person. My bad. Then on pages 9 through 11, we get sort of the backstory of the Ophidians. They're this odd alien race that really doesn't communicate, but basically causes people to go to war or kill themselves simply due to their mistrust of other alien beings. Since they themselves were once attacked by aliens, they feel the only way that they can survive is by destroying all other life in the universe. So, I guess a good motivation for aliens trying to kill everyone. It's just too bad that after this story, I don't think the Ophidians are ever mentioned ever again in DC continuity which is disappointing because I think they could have made an interesting foe for the Green Lantern Corps, especially Guy Gardner, and perhaps even uh, the wider DC universe. Page 12, panel 2. I've got to admit, uh, the uh, side boob shot that we're getting of Boudicca here, not bad. I'm, I'm okay with it. Moving ahead to page 15, panel 5, here's where the wonkiness starts to uh, creep in. And Guy tells Boudicca that the ship is moving so fast that they both lack the imagination to conceive of the speed that they're moving at. Yeah, I, I don't get it either. And of course that continues on into page 16, where Guy comes up with the idea that the two should meld the rings together so that they can fly faster? Really? What bizarro world does this concept come from? It it makes no sense to me. And then, of course, on page 17, panel 1, as the two meld their minds together to uh, speed up, we get the horrible face of Tim Curry. The, oh, no. I guess that's just the melding of the faces of Guy and Boudicca with the ring powers. It's it's weird. I, I'm i not liking this. It doesn't make any sense. It's done for no reason whatsoever. And unfortunately, what happens is they do this fancy ring thing. And then on page 18, there's a giant explosion as they catch up with the ship. No explanation of why the ship exploded. It wasn't like that they attacked the ship or the ship you know, went into meltdown or anything. They just speed up and catch up with the ship, and then kablooey. Makes no sense, and kind of a poor ending for this entire storyline. It was very disappointing. However, even though the issue was kind of disappointing, I'm hoping that our look at the ads for this comic won't be as disappointing. And we'll start again with the inside front cover, which is a rehash of the outside back cover of last time's issue, with the Crash Test Dummies and their video game for the Game Boy, the NES, and the Game Gear, which was essentially the color version of the Sega Genesis handheld. It was a neat game, but unfortunately, the Game Boy 
pretty much mopped the floor with any other handheld consoles at the time. Then a few pages in, we get an advertisement for Make a Day for Six Flags. Bigger than Disneyland and closer to home. And it has the uh, Six Flags theme parks in Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, St. Louis, Chicago, Atlanta, and New York. No matter where you live or travel, there's a Six Flags near you. And yes, I will agree with them. Disneyland and uh, Six Disneyland probably is smaller than most of the Six Flags park. And Six Flags rides tend to be a lot more action-oriented than Disneyland rides. But for my money... Disneyland has it over Six Flags in the presentation and definitely the cleanliness. Cleanliness. Not saying that Six Flags is you know uh, like a carnival park, but they don't seem to do the upkeep that Disney World or Disneyland does on their stuff. So if you're looking for fun, exciting thrill rides, Six Flags is the place to go. But if you're wanting for a overall experience you're better off going to Disneyland or Disney World. And there's my plug for Scott Gardner's Place of Business. Then on the next page, ironically, well, not really ironically, but since we're talking about handheld game consoles, we get an advertisement for Y-Lynx 16-bit action. And if you've got the games uh, Pit Fighter, Dracula, The Undead, Switchblade 2, no idea, and Batman Returns, and it's an advertisement for the Atari Lynx, the most fun you can hold in your hands. Which, tying with the innuendos from the beginning of the book, I'll let you just go with that. But the Lynx was essentially Atari's version of the Game Gear, or their try to outsell the Nintendo Game Boy. Another sort of failed attempt on Atari, and sadly Atari was just not the console system that it used to be. I remember at the same time they came out with the Jaguar, and that really didn't do very well either. But luckily Atari has come back with their own set of software, but hardware and consoles, Atari's time was finished after the 2600. The American Comics Entertainment ad has the list of hot comics again, with, oh, a bunch of them, including... Let's see some of the ones that run for a lot of money. Archer and Armstrong, number 0, 2, and 8, are running for 15 bucks. See if there's any others. Oh, Harbinger, again, $50. I don't get that. Magnus, number 5, $50 as well. Let's see. Uncanny X-Men, number 248, number 20, uh, running for 25 And Turok, number 1 gold, running for $75. Some ridiculous prices on these books, and I'm betting you could probably find these either at your LCS or online at eBay for more than half that price. Probably more than a tenth of that price. Yeah, the 90s speculator market really did make comics that really had no value and no staying power whatsoever sound like a ridiculously good deal. The next page is another ad for East Coast Comics, giving price list of all their stuff, and since it's a really, really tiny print, I don't think I'm going to try and read it right now. Then moving to the center of the book, we get the ad title, Gentlemen, Start Your Screaming, and it's an ad for the Super Nintendo version of Batman Returns. Now, I'm assuming that this is just a souped-up version of the NES version of Batman Returns, and the graphics look a little bit better. The artwork for the... Uh, 
for the copy is really nice. Uh, they've got a artistic rendering of the uh, Tim Burton Batmobile with a disturbingly phallic thing coming out of its front jet engine. It almost looks, well, it looks phallic or it looks like a sort of tweaked nipple. I don't know how to feel about that. Especially because we've got an image of Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman trying to do that whole twisty thing where she's showing both backside and boobs at the same time. And then, of course, hovering over her is Danny DeVito as the penguin, the eerily creepy penguin in his giant rubber ducky. There's an image to haunt your dreams. A few more pages in, we get the hodgepodge page with uh, oh, some x-ray specs you can buy, as well as learning to draw superheroes and learning to get Atlas-style muscles. Of course, the bottom quarter panel of the page is dedicated to the awesomeness that is Bloodline's Outbreak. Yes, Bloodline's Outbreak is here. The DC Universe page this time is touting the uh, Larger Than Life Atom series, which is written by... who does it say here? Well, that's odd. They don't give any author or artist credits here, so disappointing. There's also a DC bullet page, which basically tells about, oh, wow, there's going to be, as of last November of 1993, there was talk about a Lobo the Movie coming out. Yeah, so look for Lobo the Movie coming to theaters really soon. As in probably not ever. I mean, even Guy Ritchie has decided he's not going to do the Lobo movie. Plus, we get the obligatory, the man is back, or is he ad? And this, we've got a uh, white image with, with an outline of a sort of bulky person with the Superman symbol on his chest, carrying a large hammer. And we can only assume that this might be the Man of Steel. Literally, the Man of Steel. I think we all know who it is, though. Nothing really of interest in the Guy Talk column. Uh, it's basically Guy answering letters from people and people praising Guy's stories. A lot of calls for Guy to bring back the uh, ridiculous big moon boots they had, as well as other people claiming that he should keep the cowboy boots with the giant G symbol on the side. There you go. The back inside cover has another ad for Flashback, the quest for identity, the first CD-ROM game in a cartridge, which I believe we covered in a previous issue. But the back outside cover has a very retro-feeling advertisement for Barg's Root Beer, where if you send away, or I guess if you buy Barg's Root Beer, inside they come with uh, 36 different Barg 2s, which I guess are those sort of water color, well, those water rub-on tattoos that stay on there for a couple of days and then just basically fade off. It's an interesting thing. They're taking a lot of images from these sort of 50s, I don't know, really pulp serial movies. It looks like uh, kind of This Island Earth feel or the uh, the sort of 50s sci-fi horror vibe. Uh, it's kind of neat. Uh and Barg's root beer is one of the tastier root beers. And I don't know. I've always been an A&W fan myself. Barg's does have a sort of kick to it that the other root beers don't have. And your mileage may vary on whether you want to drink the sort of more bitter, more has a bit of a kick root beer 
that Bargs puts out, or whether you wanted to taste something smoother like a mug root beer or an A&W. But that's all personal taste, and I'll leave that up to you. But that finished up the issue, that finishes up the ads, and that leaves me only one last thing to say, that yes, again, these issues have not been in any way, shape, or form collected into a trade, which disappoints me to no end. Hopefully, though, DC will get off its laurels and uh, start putting them out in digital form. You know, if these were actually available on Comixology, I wouldn't be disappointed about that. And on that note, I'm going to tell you that you need to come back next week because this is the point in time where I'm going to get incredibly excited about the books. Not because of the Green Lantern one, because the Green Lantern one deals with Deathstroke and the Terminator and the Predator. Not my favorite issue, but the Guy Gardner issue starts a four-part story arc that I think is the best thing that has ever happened to Guy Gardner. Chuck Dixon, writer extraordinaire, comes onto the story and tells the tale of Guy's early life and yesterday's sins. Essentially, the year one story of Guy Gardner. So, everyone, please come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, and we'll get to some of the best, most awesome Guy Gardner stories out there. Stay tuned, folks. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Inkle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback to the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justwhattheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too. As long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at just one of the guys, all one word, dot Lipson, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read you on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account on Facebook. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble out about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music this time out was John and Al Kaplan with their version of Predator, the musical, and the song, If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It. Of course, this is a YouTube creation, and not to be found on Amazon.com. But simply because the song can't be bought at Amazon doesn't preclude that you should go to the Amazon site via 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. By going to 2TrueFreaks and clicking on the banner at the top of the page, you'll be transported to the most awesome website on the internet, where you can buy myriads of things, from DVDs to books, video games, televisions, anything your heart could desire, with low shipping and low costs. And every time that you go to Amazon, 
please make certain that you go through the link at twodrewfreaks.libson.com in which any purchase that you make on Amazon will give a little bit money back to Chris and Scott, making sure that Star Trek, Star Wars, and comics are represented well on the internet by the Two True Freaks. Oh, and Hey Kids Comics will be there at the beginning of the year, so look forward to that.